You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, dedicated to cultivating a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. Every generation before us has improvised the biblical tradition just a little bit based on where they were in history and what kind of things were going on, and they reinterpreted it a little bit again and again. We have seen the scripture from the position of one who lives on top of systems and structures that actually are oppressing people. Every single person who wrote the scriptures was oppressed. Every single one. Sometimes when I hear people speak about God, I feel like an atheist. The God they speak of, I just don't believe. A God who loves Christians but hates Muslims, or a God who pours luxuries on the rich but consigns the poor to poverty. So if you ask me, is God real? I first have to ask which God we're talking about and what do you mean by God? To be hard to be a decent human being. That was a teaser. It was a teaser of our Faith Culture Question series that we have coming up this fall. We have three speakers coming in. Uh, David Bazan, who's a singer-songwriter. Uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, who was the female voice in there, who I'm going to talk about in just a minute. And Brian McLaren, who's an author and just all-around lovely human being. And we're super excited to have the three of them coming and speaking during our midweek series. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about why we do Faith Culture Questions every, well, now every fall at Forefront. Um, but today I wanted to get started by talking a little bit about a specific book that's written by Lisa Sharon Harper. And um, I'm always in the middle of five or six different books at once, and this summer I figured I'd better finish them all up because with the baby on the way, I don't know how much reading I'm going to get to do in the future. So I figure I better get that out there just in case you're wondering what's going on. Um, so... So this particular book that Lisa wrote is called Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. And she co-authored it. And the authors together um, outlined the participation, or quite frankly, the blind eye-turning of American Christians to atrocities in our common American history. In each chapter, it goes through the history and then some theology and either a prayer of lament or a prayer asking for forgiveness over the church's treatment toward things like the environment, Native Americans, slaves, immigrants, the LGBT community, other minority groups, including women. And the authors of the book acknowledge that while they might not necessarily have been present or complicit for all of these atrocities, as American Christians themselves, they do sometimes benefit from them and therefore bear the responsibility of this communal sin. And they suggest that in order for us to be able to heal as a church, as a society, we don't need to necessarily you know, resurrect slave owners and make them pay back wages, but we do need to actually talk about our history of racism and expose the stories and be honest about it and to ask to, to apologize for it, to ask for forgiveness um, and to start to heal that way. I think Ben actually, Ben Grace, who preached last week, who's sick today, by the way, um, he did a great job last week of exemplifying for us just what this might look like as he talked about our history of racism as a country and the theology that stemmed 
or that caused it, a lot of it. And I think this is why it's so important, too, that we always talk about listening to the stories of people who look or believe different things than you. Because healing begins with empathy, and empathy always begins with listening. How many of you guys have seen that movie, Spotlight? Raise your hand. Oh, kind of a lot of you. Okay. It's on Netflix right now. I recommend that you check it out. Uh, it also won the best picture this year at the Academy Awards. Marley Walters on our Manhattan staff, she wrote this great blog post on the Forefront blog, um, tying in this movie Spotlight with the book Forgive Us that I was just talking about that Lisa co-authored. Spotlight is the story of the team of reporters who uncovered the massive cover-up of child abuse by the Roman Catholic priests in the Boston area. And this um, investigation and this headline came out in the Boston Globe in 2001-2002. And since then, I think we all have heard of the many other stories that have come out around hundreds of different countries and cities around the world, uh, proving that the highest levels of the church knew about thousands, if not, unfortunately, millions, of cases of child abuse that happened over the course of decades, and yet they didn't do anything or didn't take the proper actions to prosecute or prevent those priests and stop them from hurting, hurting our children. It's kind of an awful story, really, but towards the end of this movie, the leader of the group of reporters, Robbie, who's played by Michael Keaton, he is approached by someone who's kind of nebulously connected to the cardinal uh, of the church in, in Boston, and he's asked to keep quiet about this whole thing. And Robbie replies, he says, this is how it happens, isn't it? A guy leans on a guy, and suddenly the whole town looks the other way. In other words, this is how cover-ups are orchestrated. One man comes to another and asks him to keep quiet about what he knows, you know, for the good of the city, for the good of the church, because the church does so much good for people. And later, when Robbie pressures a source to find out just how many people are, how many priests are implicated in this whole thing, uh, you know, he says to the source, like, how could you have let this happen? And the person says back to him, well, where were you in it all? And that's when Robbie begins to realize the guilt he feels. Because decades earlier, he was in Boston. In fact, he even went to school with some of the boys who were being abused by the priests at the time. And then later, he had the platform of the press. He could have shared some of these stories. But he went along with it when others at his newspaper decided that these stories weren't important enough to investigate or to pursue further. And so now here he is in 2001, and he's learning the full and horrifying extent of this massive cover-up. And he's listening to countless stories of people who've been abused by priests, and he takes on the weight of this communal sin and feels the guilt, even though now he refuses to be complicit and let it continue on. Okay, now that, I realize, is a heavy story, right? But I do have to wonder... How many of us have ever found ourselves in sort of a similar situation where we felt morally compromised or maybe guilty for something that we didn't outright do, but maybe we indirectly participated in? I mean, we all work in New York City, right? Where big business reigns supreme, and chances are that you have maybe found yourself in a position at a time or two where you were asked to kind of overlook something or to pay less attention to you know, where your product is coming from or who's taken advantage of in the process because the end goal or the good of the business or economics was more important. Maybe there were times that you felt uncomfortable in your family or in your workplace because your values didn't align with what was going on around you. Or maybe 
you kept quiet about it just to maintain the peace or to keep the status quo. You know, maybe you kept quiet to keep your job. I think if we really take time to reflect on it, we've probably all found ourselves in a sticky moral situation at one point or another, whether it was in our personal lives or in our workplaces, or maybe even in the way that we interpret our religion. Well, in John chapter eight, we find Jesus in one of those situations. He has been teaching in the temples when his critics, the lawyers and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, they bring this woman who they claim to have caught in the act of committing adultery and they place her in the center of the group where Jesus is teaching. And they remind Jesus that the laws say that this woman should be stoned to death for committing adultery. Never mind the fact that the the law actually says that the woman and the man should be stoned to death. We can only imagine what happened to the man here. Maybe he escaped or maybe, I don't know, they let him go because they were clearly more concerned about the woman here. They drag her before Jesus and again, they ask him, what should we do? Okay, now here's the thing. The reason I want us to unpack this story today is because I want us to really fully appreciate what Jesus is doing in moments like this. If you guys want to learn leadership skills, you don't need to buy the new you know, business or leadership book on Amazon. You just need to dig into the gospels because Jesus is the ultimate improviser. He is a master negotiator, a great storyteller, and pretty much the wisest leader you're ever gonna find. So in order for us to fully appreciate these things about what he's doing in these moments though, we gotta dig kinda deep into the Old Testament and ask some sort of confusing questions and go down some paths with the laws and stuff in order to kind of understand the culture and the tradition of the Hebrew people that were influencing this scene. And this is what it means to faithfully question scripture. It's pulling back those layers and keep going down the rabbit hole. Because if you just read this thing at surface level, you miss out on a ton about how incredible Jesus really is. So I want us to attempt to dig into this a little bit together today. First off, the law that the Pharisees are referring to is a law that God gave to Moses that required that both parties who are are found committing adultery should suffer stoning, should be stoned to death. Um, There are actually passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that people commonly refer to as referencing these particular laws. Notice how Jesus doesn't challenge whether or not she's guilty. He knows the true spirit of these laws, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But I think really, first and foremost, he recognized what was really going on here. And he wasn't going to get fooled and weighted down in the details of the whole thing. They were trying, once again, to trap him, as they had done so many times before. They appear to have wanted Jesus's execution much more than the woman's. And yet this group of men were completely willing to shame this woman, to take away her dignity and to sacrifice her life in order to get to Jesus. They were hoping to either catch him breaking the law or at least telling people to do something immoral and to kind of crush his growing reputation amongst the people for being this man of mercy and grace, right? he was starting to take away some of their power as the religious leaders and they didn't like it. So this whole thing was an attempt for them to get some of their power back, right? So imagine the tension that was in the air for both this woman and for Jesus and don't even get me started on how angry it makes me to think about what the men are actually doing. But what does Jesus do? The text says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. This is why I called Jesus a master improviser earlier, because I believe that that's what he's doing here. Maybe you guys have heard this story before where um, 
he is bent down on the ground and he's writing out the sins of every person who's standing there. Or maybe you've heard that he was writing out the law of Moses to give it extra emphasis. But the text doesn't tell us any of that. Anybody who, who guesses at what he's writing, it's just pure speculation, okay? All we know is that he's, I don't know, he's writing, he's doodling or something. And I just imagine Jesus doing this like weird, awkward thing, bent over on the ground, and everybody's kind of wondering, like, what's he doing? You know, and he obviously has done it for long enough that they start to, to ask him again, hey, you know, pay attention. Like, what, what's your answer here? And so what does Jesus say? He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And when they hear this, they begin to disperse slowly, starting with the older men first. And I don't know, maybe it's because older men are wiser, they're more willing to admit their mistakes or to give up their pride when a plan fails. Maybe this is when their consciences finally kick in and they start to think things like, oh, well, I did tell a lie to my wife yesterday. I guess I'm, you know, I make mistakes too. I don't know. I think that's the way that we usually hear this story go, that we think the Pharisees walked away doing some real hard self-examination and finding that they too are not perfect and so they should not condemn others. And well, that's a great lesson for us to take away, that we should do the same. We should look at ourselves before we judge others. I do want us to move maybe a little bit more away from the individual and consider the community in this story today. So in light of the stories that I, asked, I talked about earlier, what if Jesus meant without sin in the committing of this adultery? Like what if he was referring to the communal sin that was happening in this story? I'm not saying that Jesus was accusing all the men of sleeping with this one woman, but what if he was calling out their complicity I believe the thing that we should pay most attention to here is where Jesus is standing in the story, in between the woman and her accusers, calling them out for their communal sin and for the systems of power and oppression that they have built that make them think that it's acceptable to publicly call out and shame a woman in her sin like this for all their own benefit. You gotta understand that Jesus lived under the law. He very much respected the law and knew it very well. In fact, he says in Matthew that his very purpose for coming was to fulfill those laws and to, to bring us a fuller understanding of them. And so when he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her, I think he was actually referring to the law that required that in cases of stoning, at least two witnesses of the sin who've not participated in it have to be the ones to throw the first stones. So obviously this, you know, two witnesses was to protect people from liars or from jealousy, false accusations, right? But even more so, I wonder if this was Jesus's test to prove that this whole thing was just a plot about the men getting their power back. Because notice how nobody sticks around to throw the first stone. No one feels confident enough to do that. There is this passage in uh, Numbers 5, this cultural tradition that I want to tell you guys about. You've maybe never read about it before. I certainly hadn't. It's called the ordeal of bitter water or the ordeal of jealousy, where if a man is suspected, suspects his wife of being a cheater or he can bring her in front of a council of elders, we'll call them, uh, even if he doesn't have proof or witnesses or anything to make a formal case against her. And the priests would have her drink this potion or this poison of water and dust from the tabernacle floor. And so now if she was guilty, if she was an adulterer, and especially if she was carrying another man's child, 
This potion would shrivel her womb, as it says, uh, and basically it sounds like force an abortion. And if she wasn't, then she would be fine and she'd go on to bear children and this would be a sign of God's favor over her and that she was not guilty. It's this really horrible example of how a group of men believe that they have the right to control a woman's body. But the thing is, this ordeal rarely ever really happened in the culture at the time. It was common practice to bring her before the elders and to pressure her into a confession first. In fact, repeated attempts would be made to make the woman confess first. Basically, the whole thing was set up to shame her and her spouse, so much so that the very idea of this happening would keep you loyal in your marriage. So, I don't know. Things like that might have been at play in this whole thing because realize that in order for a woman to be caught in adultery at this time, someone in the community must have had foreknowledge of that relationship. You know, whoever plotted this whole scheme must have, I don't know, seen her flirting at the well with a man who was not her husband and did nothing. Or maybe her husband talked to them about the troubles he was having in his marriage and they did nothing. Or even worse, maybe it was the husband, the jealous husband who arranged this whole thing. Traditionally, we are so quick to assume the worst about the woman. Like the men in the story, though, how often do we do the same thing with women in our society today? Shaming with our words, trolling on social media, our unspoken judgment. Like the people in Boston who knew about the priests, and like the Christians who knew Native Americans were being cheated and robbed of their land, like everyone who sees wrong and does nothing or covers it up because unconsciously, it benefits them or it maintains the status quo. They were complicit and the sin became communal. Jesus, let's be clear, has never been a guy who went along with the status quo. He always stood on the side of the oppressed. So what could this story teach us if we stopped to consider not just the woman's sin in this story, but the community's sin? What if Jesus was saying that they were all guilty of the very sin they were accusing this one woman of? I have been reading a lot of mom and pregnancy blogs lately, and I've also been reading a lot of feminist theology. <laughs> and I was recently telling a friend how much it's starting to drive me a little crazy that the tone in these articles and, and things to mothers has this underlying assumption that we're all ashamed or that we all feel guilty and that it's on us to personally improve and move past those feelings, which is the part that I take issue with. Ashamed of our postpartum bodies, of our messy homes, you know, guilty because we're not super moms. What bothers me about this, though, is that I never read about how perhaps that shame is not all our fault. It's subtle stuff, just in the tone of the articles most of the time. But I want to read things that talk about how, yes, we are overwhelmed and we're overburdened, but maybe it's because our government doesn't value us enough to create family policies that protect us in the workplace. Or maybe because the cost of childcare is so overwhelmingly high and then rallies people to do something about it. I want to read things that don't allow women to continue to internalize that shame and that guilt. It doesn't continue to feed that narrative that it's something that they need to fix and move past. And maybe it would help if we had more conversations about how we do too easily shame each other as well, with our gossip and our judging stares, our words. Those are the articles that I would like to find more of. And then last week, I felt so validated because I found one. <laughs> it was in Time Magazine, and the author, Ruth Whitman, points out that women's empowerment is not real power. She says this, 
Women are still drastically underrepresented anywhere that genuine power resides in the U.S., especially in business and politics. By advising women to fight this sexist norm through empowerment, the feeling of inner potency, not the material gain in status, the feminist movement has started to sound like a branch of the self-help industry. Lean in, adopt power positions, negotiate a raise, walk tall, stop apologizing, think positive, be assertive, the message is clear. If you want to feel empowered, you need to be improved. If we buy into the story, in which feminism is a feel-good anthem and women are to blame for their own oppression, the genuinely powerful woman will remain an exception. All this is to say that when we don't talk about communal sin and the systems of power that we have created within our societies, then those who are being oppressed within those systems end up thinking it's all their fault. Imagine the shame those teenage boys must have felt when the priests took advantage of them and how that shame carried over into adulthood, resulting in addiction and sometimes even suicide. Understand the fear and the self-doubt that a black person or a Latino person feels that prevents them from speaking up when they are the only minority at a conference table. Realize how much it makes a queer person feel less than human and strips away their dignity when they are told by the church that they are not welcome in a place that welcomes everyone. One of the things that resonates with me about John's gospel is this very present tense focused mentality that he has as he writes. The writer quotes Jesus speaking about having life and having it to the fullest, not in a way that means life after death or life when Jesus comes back, but here and now that the kingdom of God begins now and flows into the future. And so when John uses the word life as in 1010 and he says that Jesus came so that people may have life and have it to the fullest, He's typically referring to the quality of our lives right now. I believe that a flourishing human being is the very glory of God and that sin is anything that prevents people from flourishing. And so this, friends, this is what is so beautiful about this encounter between Jesus and the woman who's caught in her sin. After all her accusers walk away ashamed, Jesus stood up and said to the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, it's in moments like this that we get the fullest picture of what Jesus came into this world to do. When the laws of Moses, the Ten Commandments were written, humanity was not advanced enough to handle the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ or to understand that stoning a person is not okay. They needed the punishment of stoning, something so awful and so horrific to hold as a deterrent that if something like that did ever happen in the center of town, it would set such a precedent that it would never happen again. You know, just like you would maybe say to your annoying little brother or sister, stop doing that or I'm gonna kill you. Like, you don't really mean it, right? You're not really gonna kill them, I hope. (laughs) But you are trying to emphasize just how much you want them to stop their bad behavior. Just as a woman caught in adultery is not really meant to be stoned, to stone someone is a far worse thing. Punishments like this are not necessarily listed in the laws because they're meant to be performed, but they're meant to set boundaries for people, for the people of God, to keep them from doing things that would stop them from flourishing. The laws are there to teach us our own humanity. 
And so Jesus knew the true spirit behind these laws, the spirit of mercy and forgiveness, enemy love and nonviolence, and God's character of justice and generosity. It's hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's not fully revealed until we get the person of Jesus and he fully embodies it in moments just like this. This is why we are so in need of Jesus. It's just one more example of how he is changing the status quo pushing against the religious assumptions of the time and progressing people into a more loving relationship with God, just as we are called to do here in our own context. You know, it's sad to me that our modern day editors call this story the woman caught in adultery because maybe if they focused more on the redemption and the disruptive disruption of the system of inequality, it might get included in our children's Bibles. I don't know. <laughs> But I can't help but wonder when we focus so much on the sin, do we prevent people from getting to Jesus? Do the systems of oppression and the communal sin that we take part in keep people from flourishing and having life to the fullest? As a church, we are called to be a people who bring about justice, to talk about these things, to shine a spotlight on the stories of people who have been living in shame in our society for far too long because of the labels that we have put on them, either in our history or in our current day, because of the communal sins that we have allowed to prosper. This is exactly why we're hosting events like Faith Culture Questions, so we can have better conversations about this stuff, so we can ask harder questions. So I encourage you guys, buy a ticket, sign up for a small group, get involved this fall so that we can start to become a people who stand in the middle with Jesus and fully embrace the humanity of every living person. Amen? All right, so now I want us to move into a time of communion. But before we do, I'd like to ask you all to pray with me. God, I thank you for your son. I thank you for sending him so that we might start to understand the incredible love that you have for us, Lord, the generous love that you have for us, Lord. I thank you that we have him as an example to teach us that we can be free, Lord, free from the things that burden us, free from the sins that weigh us down, Lord. And I just pray that as your people, as your body here on earth, that we would continue to be, that we would learn to be a courageous people who stand up when we see things that are wrong, who learn to live within your values and to speak up when we see things that are less than flourishing, Lord. I pray that we would learn to be a more courageous church that stands in justice and generosity, that we would be a people who, who have harder conversations, Lord, who begin to realize just who it is that you're calling us to be. And as we come up and take communion this morning, God, I just pray that you would speak into each one of us individually, that we might learn that how you're working in each one of our lives is just as important as how you're working in us communally together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.